before we begin to come towards the end of our time with Noah and the, the specific narrative here of Noah, one of the more well-known Bible studies, and really this is probably one of the more well-known parts of it, the, the rainbow in the sky we see as the sign of the covenant. Just a, a few comments to catch us up um, to where we are. <clears throat> but you saw a, a while back in Genesis 6, verse 18, is actually where we see the beginning of this covenant established with Noah. That God has promised a judgment is going to come. Uh, he's going to send a flood. He's going to wipe out all of all living creatures, all living things. And then you have Noah here. And if you remember from Pastor Adam Servant several weeks ago, Noah here, who the Lord has set his favor upon, who the Lord has been gracious to. And Noah finds favor in the sight of God. And in verse 18 of chapter 6, we see this covenant begin. We see it established here. He says, but I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you and your sons and wife and your sons' wives with you. And every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark and keep them alive. And then it continues. And so he begins, he sets forth this idea of the covenant here before the flood even comes. And he makes it with Noah. And it is with Noah. And it is with you, he says. And then from you with your offspring over you. And then it extends to creation. It extends to these creatures that he is going to bring onto the ark to, to continue his creation. And then it picks back up then after the flood event. They leave the ark. Chapter 8, verse 20. Noah builds an altar to the Lord. The Lord smells that sweet aroma, and then he returns to his covenant that he was going to make, that he is making. Verse 21 says, when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. So he sets forth the primary promise then of this covenant and continuing it from chapter 6. Then we get into chapter 9 and the provisions of this covenant are then laid out for us. If you remember, there's a uniqueness to this covenant. It's telling, sort of retelling the creation story that we saw uh, beginning Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, be creators and cultivators and spread God's image throughout the earth. And it's kind of restated here after the flood of be fruitful fruitful and multiply and be creators and cultivators and starts to extend it. But what is that major difference that we saw now in the very heart of this covenant is the truth that men's heart is evil. The intentions of men are evil from their youth. So it's vastly different from Genesis 1 with Adam and Eve and their moral uprightness and, and the, the, the the way they enjoyed communion with God to now man in his evil heart. And so the flood has come, and it has been a judgment on sin, but it has not been the remedy for sin. Because coming out of the flood, man's heart is evil continually. So how then does he carry out this, this covenant with Noah, with this individual who has found grace from God? And he sets forth these provisions then, how man in his sinfulness is to be fruitful and to multiply and to abound on the earth. And he makes that provision between, between man and animals that we looked at last week, that they'll roll with fear and, and, and terror over animals, that animals can be now provisioned for their food. Between man and man, the introduction of civil government, as we see man now takes some of that divine prerogative in ruling over other men. We saw it through the eyes of capital punishment as he put on there to promote life, to protect the image of God. If you take the life of man, then man shall take your life. 
Then finally we saw that the main need still coming out of the flood, the remedy for sin, and we see it in the blood. We see that God is starting to provide an offering that man can, can then give to God as atonement. That God is providing what is needed. He is giving life. He, he is giving to man what is going to be needed to atone for his sin. And it points us towards Christ. So these provisions are made. And then we get to our text today in verse 8. And then we see it there. God said to Noah and to his sons, Behold, I establish my covenant with you. This idea of establish, it's not something brand new, but it's now, he is, he is making it stand firm. He, he is setting it firm. What he's already started in chapter 6 in that promise and delivering Noah through the ark, he is now setting that covenant to stand firm with them. And he begins then to, to move away from the provisions and the commandments within this covenant, and he moves to sort of testimony to what God promises to do and who God promises to be in this covenant. And then he attaches the sign to it with the rainbow. This morning as as we look at the text, it's going to be a a little different than typically how a sermon comes together. When when I preach, typically we end up with three, four points and we have an outline. Today it's going to be more a few observations that I think rise out of this text that are going to be important for us to look at. But first, just a word about the covenant. We see, in general, this, this covenant that he makes. Again, beginning in verse 9. Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. There's a few just general observations about it, and that is there's a universal nature to this covenant. It's not just Noah and his family. I mean, it extends to all of creation. God is making a covenant with all of creation. And so there is a a commonality, a universality, a common grace to this covenant that God is making. And so we see this universal aspect of it. Because of that, it is a, a unilateral covenant. Literally in there, it says, I, behold, I myself establish my covenant. Three times it speaks to the ownership, to the possession of it. God himself, he is establishing this covenant. It's not man's idea. It's not in cooperation with man. We see it's unilateral because it's obviously not in cooperation with animals in a sense that they have to acknowledge it and accept it. This is God unilaterally making a covenant. And then we see that it is unconditional as it's not based on any condition outside of God, but it's based upon His goodness and His kindness. And we know that it is established this way because at the very heart of the establishment is His recognition that the intentions of man's heart is still evil. And so God sets forth this covenant that never again will He, he destroy, bring judgment in this sort of cosmic way. Will He bring it upon the earth and wipe out everyone? There will now be a firm foundation. It will be upon, upon this, in this theater, in this foundation, that the redemptive plan of God will continue now to unfold. There's, there's a certainty about it. Yes, sin is an issue. It is here. God is making provision for man. But He will be gracious. He will be kind. He will, by His own goodness, withhold pouring out judgment. 
And so from here on out, as redemption unfolds, as, as it continues to unfold, it will happen in this theater. And so in a very real way, we today enjoy this Noahic covenant. That God is gracious to us as part of creation and withholding judgment and being good to us. And so, with this sort of idea of the covenant made, uh, just a few observations that I think are helpful for us. When we look at this covenant, first observation is we realize that the human experience is not just a given. We know this, but I don't think we, we think about it too often, that the reason we wake up, we live our day, we enjoy what we enjoy, we go back to sleep, is because of God's graciousness and God's goodness and God's kindness. The relationships we have, the jobs we have, the, the way we walk through life, none of that is a given. It's established by God's goodness in God's graciousness in our life. It, it, it's not a given. E- even the pattern of our lives is not just random. You think about how it is established here. Look in, in verse 22 of chapter 8. As he's establishing the covenant, he goes, While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Just the gracious sort of predictability in pattern to life is a gift from God. The idea of seasons, that you'll walk through summer, winter, fall, walk through these seasons. The, the idea of morning and evening, that the predictability of the sun rising, that you live your day of going back to bed, sun and moon. The predictability there of harvest and seed time, of, of, of laboring, of doing work, and then enjoying the fruits of it. It's promised to us in this covenant. It's established for us in this covenant. I know we say it often, it's true, that um, you know, nothing's guaranteed. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. Life is not guaranteed, and that is true. But it's also very predictable. (laughs) There is a pattern to it that gives us comfort, that gives us the ability to be productive. That we have the morning, we have the day, we have the evening. The seasons come, we work, and there is fruit for the labor. That isn't just random. It doesn't just happen to be that way. We see in this covenant that God establishes both our life and the pattern of our life in a specific way. Second observation is that this preserving covenant testifies to God. It testifies to God. Psalm 19, it's that that psalm that speaks about the heavens declaring the glory of God. It looks back to the Noahic covenant in its language as it speaks about creation and God upholding creation as testifying to God. Listen to the first few verses of Psalm 19. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words 
to the end of the world. In this, this universal covenant, this pattern of day and night, of sun and moon, of seasons, what he's established here, it testifies to everyone that there is a God. It testifies that there is a good God. It's not a saving knowledge, we know that. It's not redemptive and special in its revelation. But it is the testimony established here that God will withhold judgment and will be good and gracious to his creation. That he will let them enjoy the pattern of life. And then the psalmist looked back on it and says, that pattern of life, that goodness of God in creation, it testifies to everyone that there is a God. And it testifies that that God is good. The third observation, though, we see that it is not the final solution. This covenant is not the final solution. It is a world that exists, that God is gracious, that God is good, but he is all of these things in spite of our sin. He has judged sin, but the remedy for that sin has not yet come. It's not the final solution. In this withholding of judgment, he gives time to work out his redemptive program. He gives time for people to respond in faith. But it points us, it it continually points us forward that there is still a need. There is still something that needs to come. It's not the final solution. It's described in verse 16. It says, when the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. It, it describes it as an everlasting covenant. But there is also a sense in which parameters are, are given to the way that that everlasting covenant works out. Back again in, in chapter 8, and verse 22, while the earth remains, there's the parameters <laughs> Here is the covenant that, that guides life. And here is life. Being fruitful, multiplying, teeming, be, being uh, productive as people, as image bearers on this earth. But an earth that is full of sin where every single person in this earth is marred by sin. Is dead in their sin. The intentions of their heart is evil. And God promises, I will be good, I'll be gracious, I'll give you this routine of day and night, I'll give you some predictability, I'll let you work, and you'll be able to see the fruits of that work. But it's only going to govern while this earth remains. Because we know this earth will pass away when God ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. It, It points us forward, it makes us look forward to a solution. It puts us forward. The New Testament then as it begins to think about the Noahic covenant, it it refers back to the covenant a few different times in really interesting ways. 2 Peter 3 speaks of it then as the flood is really sort of foreshadowing final judgment. It's a picture of judgment that is to come. In 1 Peter 3 then, we see then that the ark it corresponds in many ways with, with final salvation. It's compared there to baptism, to be saved through the water, the, the, the washing as we are washed by the blood of Christ, so the, the water washes away our sin. The sign there of baptism 
corresponds with the ark. And so it's speaking and it's pointing towards something future, a final judgment, towards final salvation. We, we still need deliverance. Matthew, in chapter 24, compares the, the days of Noah as typical to the days before the coming of the Son of Man. It's, it's, we see it and it pushes us forward towards the final day of judgment. When where the Noahic covenant set up, as long as the earth remains, where that passes away. And of course it points us to Christ, doesn't it? Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26, Christ appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Even in the goodness demonstrated to us in this covenant, God still hates sin. You still bear the weight of that sin. Punishment is going to be meted out for the sin. We saw it. Death is still the result of sin. We see the foreshadowing of that even in capital punishment, that justice demands a life for sin. So even in this context of God working out His redemptive program, it is pointing us, it is begging us to look forward to Christ. And now we look back, don't we? That our hope is in Jesus Christ. But still looking forward as Revelation 21 speak of the new heavens, the new earth. No longer the provisions of this covenant will be needed. Fourth observation. It is, a, it is foundational for the covenant of grace with the church. It is foundational for the covenant of grace with the church. So I say that, you, we, we speak of it, and it, rightfully so. It's a universal covenant. It, it's set forward in this universal way. And yet we see back in, in chapter 6 and verse 18, it's made with Noah. And as he finds grace, as God is gracious to Noah, he makes this covenant. And then it extends through Noah out through his offspring and from his offspring to creation. God works this way as he continues to make these biblical covenants that we see through Scripture. As he'll, he'll do so with Abraham and he, he makes a covenant with a man and it, it extends through him. And then he'll make a covenant with David and it extends beyond him. And so there is commonality, there is common grace, universal grace that is put forward in this covenant. But it serves then as the foundation of the covenant of grace. And that is that God will save to the very end his elect. It's in this, in this arena then that the church will begin to be established. Noah and his family, that little church in a very real way right there. It's God is gracious with them. And it will grow and it will expand. We'll see evil comes in and there will be all kinds of people who turn away from God. But in this arena, as God gives common grace, He grows and He builds and He preserves His church. And He gives time. He gives time that all his sheep will hear his voice and come. He gives time for us to be faithful to obey him in gospel proclamation to neighbor, to nations. The common grace here in Noah serves this grace to his church, serves this special grace to his church. You see it even in 
as you come to the parable of the wheat and the tares, as God is being gracious to everyone, he's gathering them in. You remember the, the field is full of wheat and tares, and it has the idea there of, of his church as wheat, but mixed in are, are, are unbelievers as well, but they're, they're experiencing the blessings of being part of the church. Sign of the covenant right off the bat to Noah here. And then he gives us reasons for it. And there's a few observations that I think are, are really helpful for us as we look at the sign of the covenant. First of all, it's a natural sign that speaks to something spiritual or divine. The rainbow isn't something magic happening. It's just a, a natural sign that God takes and he assigns spiritual significance, spiritual meaning to it. So it's a, a natural sign that he takes and assign something divine, something spiritual to it. And it, it is that just that, right? It, it's a sign of something. They weren't delivered through the rainbow or because of the rainbow, but it's simply a sign that points to something, points to a different reality. The same is true, it's important for us to realize that when we think of the waters of baptism, or we think of the, the elements of communion, the sacraments that belong to the church, that they are they're signs. There's nothing magical in the water. The water we use for baptism is the same water we use to make coffee. We add pine salt to it and mop the floors. I mean, that, that's the water. The bread, we get it at Trader Joe's. So, you know, it's healthy, I guess, but gluten-free for those people who need that. But there's nothing special about magical about this bread and the water. It's simply signs that God gives to assure us that work as signs and seals that point to, to something real, something spiritual that he's accomplished. And the rainbow begins that. It, it sets that forth, and it will continue. It, with, it will continue these covenants made. It's made uh, with Abraham later in the sign of circumcision, of something that points to a spiritual reality. We see it, um, it continue to grow then, the new covenant, and the bread, and the water, and the wine. But while this is true, at the same time, the sign is not just random. The element itself has, is picked for a reason. So you're saying it's not magical, it's not, again, it, that, that's just bread there. But it is picked for a reason. It's not just random, and the rainbow is the same way. Whenever he talks about the rainbow, it, giving that rainbow... Um, that bow, as it literally says there, he, he puts it as when I bring forth the clouds, when the clouds are there, when the darkness is there, when, when the darkness is there, that rainbow will stretch across the sky. And kind of the glory, the majesty, the brightness of it. So already you have this, this picture of this, this light, this beauty in the midst of the darkness, and God sets it there. The same word that is used for rainbow is the word that is used for bow, like an archer's bow. And as you work through Scripture, you see that from early on, the Pentateuch, then through the prophets, God has then begun to be described as a warrior, as a, a warrior king who goes forward. Both Habakkuk and Jeremiah start to speak of him as a warrior king who goes forward with his bow. And it begins to get attached to the idea of judgment. That here is the glorious, terrifying king. And he's a God of glory. And he is the God who judges. 
And the bow becomes the image of that judgment. And so you look back now and then we see it in, in this story of the, the flood comes and God as glorious king and judge sends the flood and he wipes out all that's evil, all this creation. And then as he promises, I'm not going to do it again, now we see this glorious bow, but it's turned away from earth. It's turned away from his creation. It's pointed back up to the heavens. As if to say, he's still God, he's still glorious, he's still on his throne, but he has turned away his judgment. Uh, it's not a stretch to get there. That grows through Scripture. The signs aren't just assigned randomly. And we see this now as this warrior king, this warrior God of judgment, turning his bow away. And the New Testament then, as it continues, Ezekiel will continue to talk about it, which is not New Testament, I realize. Ezekiel will continue to talk about it in the Old Testament. As it speaks of, again, the, the God and his glory and his terror, and it's talks, it connects it to the rainbow, that his power, his might, his, his glory... As you come through the New Testament, you get to Revelation. And here is the God who sits on his throne, the judge of the earth on his throne. And in all his glory, sitting on his throne, his power, his glory shines out like a rainbow. And so we have this sign of God's glory connected with his judgment. And yet now he has taken that bow and he has turned it away from his people. Again, we see it then, the signs, as they're connected. We can be informed by how we see the signs serving God's covenant with us going forward. Then we come to the bread. It's not magic, but it's not random either. As we think of the nourishment, as we feast upon it, as we think of the cup of wrath, the blood poured out, and the cup of wine or juice is offered to us. We think of the waters and the washing of water that is ours. It's not random. And it's not random here either. We see that the sign reassures us of God's work, not ours. This reassures us, reassures us of God's work, not ours. The rainbow wasn't given there to see, like, you know, good job, Abraham. Here's the rainbow as a sign that you did it well. And no, the rainbow points to the work of God. L look how he says this. It's interesting in verse 14. <clears throat> verse 14 through 16. It says, when I bring the clouds over the earth and the bow is seen the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And then in verse 16, when the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature. It's not just Noah looking and seeing it and remembering that God is gracious and God is good. And God won't judge them. You, you see how it says it in the text? That God looks at the rainbow and God remembers the covenant that was made. I think there's... A, really helpful application in that, that when, we're, when we walk through life and we get into to just the, the difficulty of the routine of life, maybe there's suffering that comes into our life in a distinct way. Maybe it's just the constant hardship of life. And maybe there's prayer requests that go up about changing your situation, God meeting a need, God delivering you from a temptation, and it's just ongoing and ongoing and ongoing. 
You, you see the difference in, in remembering, being encouraged and remembering, well, well, God is faithful to me. The difference between that and God giving a sign that reminds you that he remembers <laughs> that he is faithful to you. So you think, I know God's faithful, but I also think he's forgotten about me. I mean, I'm walking through this alone. This is just something that's not on God's radar. And he says, no, I remember the covenant that I have made with you. I remember. What I'm giving you is what is needed, what is good, what is gracious for your perseverance. It's exactly what you need. I'm not giving it to you for too long. I'm not giving you more than you can bear. It's not just that you remember that I'm a faithful God. I remember that I am your faithful God. And sometimes we just need that reminder and that encouragement that God remembers us as we remember him. But it points us to the accomplishments of God. And again, the signs continue to do that when we come to the waters of baptism. It's not pointing towards the person or, or pointing towards something in that person. It's pointing away to the fact that God promises to save to the very end all who lay hold of him by faith. When we come to the table, it's pointing us away from us that we are resting and we're feasting on Jesus Christ. It is pointing to his accomplishments. That's what, how the signs serve the sacraments. They don't point back to us. They point away from us to God. And it's established here from the very beginning, pointing us away from us and to God. And finally, the last observation from this sign. The signs teach us, this sign teaches us that God condescends to our weakness. God condescends to our weakness. They're visible tokens of God's faithfulness. They're called to help us to remember. They're called to strengthen our faith. Our faith is so up and down. We're all that way. Maybe we walk out some mornings, we're on fire, and we're, and then there's other times where our faith is just nearly non-existent. We're, we're up and down that way in our lives. When God looks at it, Scripture tells us again and again, when he, when he looks at man, he sees our weakness, he sees that, that he's moved with pity and compassion. And that he grants us mercy, he grants us grace. And one of those is this means of grace in the sacraments. That he, he doesn't look and think, man, they just they forget about the salvation, their faith is weak. No, he, he sees it and he gives us, because of the weakness of our faith, visible signs for us to be reminded, for us to remember, for us to proclaim, for us to be nourished by God's accomplishments for us. That he condescends to the weakness of our faith. The rainbow is that. I mean, it still shines in the sky. And it comes from the natural elements, whatever it is, the atmosphere and the sun, the water and ever it's all working together. But a sign to it is the truth that God remembers his covenant to us. That God is good. That God is gracious. It still serves as a sign. Imagine Noah needed that. He just spent time on the ark. Everything he had known is devastated and gone and dead. Uh, he needed a sign to reassure his faith. God's sign to us continues that way. 
So we look at this story, and uh, I know whenever Noah's talked about it, I mean, it's that, that childhood Sunday school type lesson, and, you know, the, the nursery walls are painted with it or whatever. It's really a horrifying scene <laughs> of utter destruction. People clamoring to get on the ark and being killed. We think of the two giraffes smiling with their heads out the window or however it works and the rainbow. It was a horrifying scene of God's judgment. You get a picture of what sin deserves. Now God steps in with this gracious covenant and he tells you, all right, I want you to start bringing children back into this world and I want you to spread abroad and I want you to continue being creative people and cultivating. But you know, like, sin still is rampant in the heart. And I see what sin gets. It gets this overwhelming judgment of God. I need some sort of assurance. And God gives that to Noah. He gives that in the sign. This covenant it begs that there still needs a remedy for sin. And it points us to Jesus Christ. He is that remedy for sin. Faith in him and him alone is a true hope. You can enjoy life, you can enjoy some success and, and relationships, whatever it might be, with, within the Noahic covenant with one another. But all of those are meaningless outside of Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning, your hope isn't resting wholly and squarely in Jesus Christ. Find someone, talk to them. Let us share more about the gospel with you. And then God continues, by His grace to allow us to enjoy the sign, the Lord's table, baptism, that strengthen and nourish our faith, that point us to how seriously God takes sin, and yet his grace to us seen in the person of Jesus Christ who saves us from that judgment, from that sin. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your goodness to us, Lord. We thank you that we learn about your grace and this covenant made with Noah. We thank you for the way that it serves all of creation commonality, your mercy, your goodness to all. We thank you for the way that it serves your church, that it is now in this environment, Lord, that you will build your kingdom through your church, and so we thank you for that. Might you strengthen God's people through your word. Give you just a moment there, continue and thought.